Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Give you praise and thanksgiving, Lord Jesus Christ, for gathering us here this day. As we focus on the second pillar of the New Testament, uh, St. Paul, we ask you, Lord, to just inspire our hearts to have a deeper and more fuller understanding of this great saint and this early apostle to the Gentiles. We ask you to inspire our hearts to be like St. Paul, to evangelize in the world in which we live, to evangelize our family and friends uh, with boldness and courage uh, and uh, an ability to preach your name, uh, which at times we struggle with, uh, with eloquence, but we ask you with your wisdom and um, your guidance to help us uh, be able to uh, speak the truth to those that we encounter each day. We offer this most especially through uh, the, the, the intercession uh, of, the, of our Queen and Blessed Virgin Mary, as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Paul. St. Peter, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Okay, so we're going to jump into uh, St. Paul. I love talking about St. Paul, and the more I've the more I've learned about St. Paul, the more I've just had a kind of a, a, a love and devotion uh, to him as well. So, uh, and it's. Uh, and there are individuals in my family now named after Paul, and it's actually one of the names we're thinking about as a, a boy's name. So, yeah, oh well, yeah, my father-in-law, my one of my brother-in-law, um, yeah. So we have we have quite a few people all of a sudden that are named Paul in my life. Okay, all right. So let's talk about. Oh, John Paul. Okay, yeah. So, okay, so he was born around 5, we believe that St. Paul was born around 5 A.D. Could be as late as 10 A.D. He was born in the seaport of Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. So what we know is Asia Minor. His Roman citizenship, and this is what I, I brought this up last week, he received it from his parents. Okay, they were slaves under Mark Anthony. Who were eventually given their freedom and allowed to be Roman citizens. So once you served as a slave, and I don't know the exact period of time, you'd have to probably ask a Roman historian, but whenever you served out your time as a Roman citizen, as a Roman slave, eventually you were given freedom. This happened with the gladiators too. You ever, you know, the, the gladiator movies sometimes display all this too. They served their time as a gladiator, they live, and then they eventually were given their freedom and their, and their citizenship. It was important to be a Roman citizen, just like you think about like being, being a U.S. citizen or being a citizen of a different country. There were certain rights and certain privileges that you had as that particular citizen. 
And it was just because he was Jewish doesn't mean you couldn't be a Roman citizen. Okay, it was opened, the Roman Empire was, it, was just, it wasn't just for people that were of Rome, but it was given to certain, again, certain different cultures, and so like St. Paul being a Jew. Uh, and his parents were actually, because they grew up, so they're Jews, but they grew up in Turkey. He was born in Turkey. They're known as, they're known, the parents are known as diaspora Jews, okay, and diaspora Jews were those that were Jewish, Practiced the Mosaic Law, but did not live in the whole, like in Jerusalem or in what we know as the Holy Land. Um, so they were after. If you guys remember from your Old Testament studies, after they're exiled, and then eventually they make they start to return. Well, some of those people they don't return. They start to settle in those lands in the Mediterranean, um, and that's kind of and that's where Saint Paul's family ends up. So, uh, and then, you know, Mark Anthony, everyone's familiar with Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, that great love story that turns tragic. They kill each other, you know, they kill, they kill, they kill, well, they kill each other, and then they kill themselves over, you know, their, their love affair. So, once Mark Anthony, once that all occurs, then his parents are able to give, uh, to become Roman citizens, and then he's born into that Roman citizenship. So that's why, and we'll talk about, I think I'm going to bring it up, um, when he, when, when uh, St. Paul, and if I bring it up again later on, I'm sorry, but uh, St. Paul, when he dies, when he's martyred, he's not crucified. Crucifixion was meant for criminals and for non-Roman citizens. When a Roman citizen was uh, killed for a capital crime, they just cut your head off. Okay, now I say just cut your head off. It's better it's a quicker it's a quicker death. Because it's not crucifixion. Crucifixion you're on the cross naked. It's humiliation. You know, it's what our Lord goes through. It's what Saint Peter goes through. Saint Peter actually says he's not worthy to die like our Lord and asked to be flipped up flipped upside down. So crucifixion, if you know anything about cruc- how nasty crucifixion is, imagine being then turned upside down. So that's why St. Paul, that's why he's beheaded and where Peter is crucified. Um, because that's essentially what they do with Roman citizens. And what they do with Paul is they take him outside. So Rome had walls around it. All the cities had walls around it. They take him outside the walls of Rome. Uh, and then they, they behead him out there. And that's, and if you've ever been to Rome now, or if you've ever seen videos on anything about Rome, St. Paul outside the walls, the, that basilica, it's the smallest of all the four major basilicas, that's the place where we believe St. Paul was martyred. That's tradition tells us. Uh, he's actually, his remains are in the church with, I think, Timothy and Titus are in there as well. Um, yeah, so there's a lot. There's also, uh, there's a spring that also... Uh, is in that area as well. When St. Paul's head was cut off, his, his head bounced three times and three springs of water sprung up on those. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, you, you, you read about that. Uh, when you go to Rome or you see there's certain videos out there that explain all of that. So that's the difference between him and Peter. So that's a, that's, and that's a big difference. He's obviously, we talked about him as a persecutor of the early church. Before he saw a vision of Jesus, 
and was baptized. We talk, we read about that in Acts chapter 9. Okay, on the road to Damascus, he's, uh, he sees the vision of our Lord. <coughs> His specific mission, bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why he's known as the apostle to the Gentiles. His, he has two names. His Roman name we know is Paul. And his Jewish name was Saul. And that's, con- that's a common thing in the, early, in the early centuries. A lot of individuals had, particularly men, had two different names. One that they might do, you know, uh, like in, like, um, like we think of it like, like Simon Peter. Okay? You know, we had... He, you know, there was Simon and then there was Cephas. And so you, you might have these different names where they, they know them one way in, in the um, synagogue, but in the commerce world, they might know him by a different name. His education was in Tarsus. He received an excellent, what we would call classical education, which is philosophy and logic. So last week we talked about how he's able to go to Athens and talk to the Greeks. Well, guess what? He had a Greek education. That's really where he would have, okay? The church in later years would take that and we would, you know, a lot of the, the great heart schools here in town, as well as St. Mary's High School, they have the great books programs that are out there a lot of those great books that's uh, you know that developed over over time in the history of the church but that's what a lot of our a lot of the saints in the the history of the church that's what they would have gotten philosophy logic rhetoric all of that stuff so that's saint paul that was considered a great education and then and then in jerusalem under gamaliel And that's G-A-M-A-L-I-E-L, G-A-M-A-L-I-E-L. Under, under Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, he then received the best Jewish education. Which is knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. Or knowledge of the, knowledge of the old, like what we would consider the Old Testament. Because I don't know if you guys talked about it. During the time of Christ, there wasn't one specific canon in Judaism. There were multiple canons during the time of Judaism. So like the Pharisees had one, the Sadducees had one, the, the Essenes had one, the, Di- the Diaspora Jews, they had one. So there wasn't, their, their canons weren't, it wasn't one official canon. The Jews really didn't put their canon together until really you start seeing the church do it in the um, in the third and fourth centuries. Yes, sir. So uh, there was something called the Septuagint. I think they talked about that in one of the other classes. Which one of them would have used the Septuagint? Like I know that eighty scholars came together to write this, but which is, which of the branches were used? The, the the Septuagint is just yeah, it's the it's this it's the uh, seventy uh, scholars. Um, 
the 70 scholars that come together and put together, it's essentially the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Essenes would have more, would have more than likely used something that was similar to the Septuagint. Our Old Testament is similar to the Septuagint. So the, the Essenes would have been the ones that would have used... The Pharisees wouldn't have used... No. They had a very small... They had a very small... Off the top of my... I think they, I think they had... I think they... The Pharisees, I think, only used two of the five books of the book... The, uh, the Torah. That's all they used. Yeah. So, they only used certain... They only, and I don't know... I don't know specifically which ones, but they only used... Yeah, two of the five books. So why would you Because it was just it was the it was well it was just the Greek it was the Greek version of the Old Testament. Just it was these scholars put <clears throat> they put the they just they just translated the Old Testament into Greek. So all right, so the letters the letters were written in Greek, since that was the common language of the people at the time. So we see a lot of the, you know, we, we talked about um, all the, uh, most of the Gospels. Matthew was written in Aramaic and then translated to Greek. But Greek's an important language because it's really the language. Greece, uh, Mark, uh, not Mark Anthony, um, uh, what's his face? Alexander the Great, thank you. And the Greek influence had such an influence in the, in the world at the time that Greece, the Greek really became the language of the culture. So even though you might have been Roman, you still, had a, you still spoke, everyone kind of spoke Greek to each other. Um, and it was just the common language of the people at the time. It was also expressed that the gospel message was to be written in new ways other than Aramaic as well. So Greek was written in new, and, and that kind of answers your questions about the Septuagint too. It was to help, was to open for other people to understand those scriptures other than in the, the language, the original language that was written in. Although Paul composed his letters, he did not personally write them down to paper or write them down on paper. Most letters in the ancient world were written by a professional secretary and Paul was no exception. So that's that's the thing in the ancient world. These the writers that we get were, you know, there's times where Paul says, "I am writing this with my own hands." That's what it literally means. He's writing it he himself. Usually, you had someone that would kind of it was like a you know they, you would dictate the letter too. So it's your thoughts, your feelings, everything that. Is coming across, but it's uh, it's being written by this professional secretary. A confidential secretary is almost an extension of his master's personality. So the secretary isn't going to write what he thinks; he's writing what his master's personality, the person that he works for. You know, and years ago, you'd have people, and I, I've been in the business world many, many years, so I don't even know. But you know, you'd have someone would, you know, you have a secretary that would dictate a letter 
they would type it up. Okay, type. All right. I learned how. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm. I'm. I remember learning how to type on a typewriter. So, um, you know. But um, I say that to. I say that to some of my younger friends, and they're like, I've never even seen a typewriter. So, um, but you. That's what you. You know. They write out the letter shorthanded, and then type it up, and then give it to the boss to sign. So. Um, so again, that's essentially very similar to what we see in the ancient world. Although the Jews tried to assimilate Jewish and Greek culture in the past, it was really St. Paul who did it well and then completely. So bringing Greek culture and Jewish culture together. Paul did it the best and did it well. And again, we see a lot of that when he goes to Athens. Because he uses the Greek culture to present the faith. The ability to take a culture and say, you know, I can take what, you, what your culture is and assimilate it to make, make you understand what Christianity is teaching. Uh, he, took a, he took ideas from a wide range of cultures and were able to apply them to Christian language. Some of the ideas that he... Uh, some of the words and ideas that he that he came up with were uh, that he used was con- the word conscience, uh, knowledge. So, what is knowledge? How, you know, how do how do we understand knowledge in a, in a cultural um, setting, but also in a Christian setting? How uh, another phrase was the love of mankind. So he used, he, in his writings, he uses these words that were familiar in the Greek culture, but also he was able to explain them in uh, what they meant in the Christian aspect of, in the Christian uh, world as well. So like, what does love of mankind mean to a Greek, and what does it mean to, uh, to a Christian? So he wrote letters to specific Christian communities. So, as we talked about, he goes and he finds these different communities. And then as questions start to arise, he starts writing these letters. So, I'm going I'm to say Paul writes the letters because that's what he wrote, even though someone else is writing them. But Paul writes these letters dealing with specific, dealing with specific needs. The thing is, though... <clears throat> There, there's great value in these letters because they're so rich in doctrine and theology. The letters also tell us about Paul's activity, the apostles' activity. And the environment which he carried out his work. What was the last part? Tell, uh, they tell us about a, the uh, Paul's activity and the environment in which he carried out his work. So you've got 
Not only are they not only are the letters answering answering specific questions, we're also getting good doctrine and theology. And then the letters also focus on what he did, his activity, and also the environment in which he carried out his work. So you get these specific, you know, so like 1 and 2 Corinthians, questions start to arise. And we'll talk specifically about, we'll talk about these specifically in a little bit. But, you know, questions arise, he's got to answer these questions. And then we get theology out of them too. I mean, you know, like the idea of the, the well, and, and I'll talk about that too, but the Eucharist, the idea of receiving the Eucharist in a worthily manner, <clears throat> when we talk to, to people about that at the parish, that's who we go to. Paul talks about the importance of worthily receiving the Eucharist. So again, we've got a lot of that doctrine and theology. So the outline of most of his letters is a six-point outline. Repeat that again, please. So the outline of his letters is kind of focused on six, diff- six, six different points. So the first part is the sender. He focuses on the sender. So like in the book, in the letter to the Ephesians... He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he kind of says, who's sending the letter? His second part is a recipient. There's usually three, three possible recipients. It's either to the whole church... either to the members of the church I can't stop coughing and then it's to individuals like Timothy, Philemon Titus so you've got these individuals that he writes to he begins with an opening greeting And then he gives thanksgiving. Which is an important thing to remember. Because we have to, you know, Paul gives thanksgiving to God. I think ourselves, we often, especially like in our prayer life, we ask for something and we get it. And we never give thanksgiving for it. So keep that. I mean, Paul does that very well. I mean, not, and when I say us, I mean just people in general. Um, we focus on, oh, you know, Lord, I want this, I want this, and we get it, and we don't, we don't thank God for giving it to us. The main gist of his letters is obviously the body of the letter, the the things that he's answering specifically. And then we have the conclusion. So there's a formation.
formality and an eloquence to, to his style of writing then, correct? Correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why there's the, you know, there's arguments that go back and forth about he about the book about the book of Hebrew about the book of Hebrews, or the or the or the letter to the Hebrews. Excuse me. Um, and we'll talk about it in the last class. The guys that a lot of you are in, the, the scholars that are influencing a lot of you in this class, because I see it on your sheets on those those info sheets, like the Scott Hans and the John Bergsmas. A lot of those guys think that Paul Paul could have written Hebrews. There's a movement that says he didn't write Hebrews, so um, it's a it's a you know because though his writing his writing is different in all the letters than it is in the letter to the Hebrews. Um, in Hebrews, it's someone who really knows the Old Testament scriptures, what we would call Old Testament scriptures, really well and understands the theology of it. Where Saint Paul's letters were more basic than what Hebrews kind of entails or what Hebrews gives us. So, but he, there is, there is an eloquence because he's educated in a, in a time of, in a time in the ancient world, not everybody was as educated as Paul. So there is an eloquence in these, in these letters. Okay. Does that make sense? Perfect. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's, and in Paul, I don't know if anyone lectures, at mass, but if you ever read Paul, oh my goodness, okay, it, it's the way it translates into English, okay, there's times where one reading is one run, I like, it's like a run-on sentence, okay, but that's the way it translates into English, if you know, okay, especially when you're reading in the scriptures, you don't really, you don't notice it as much, but when you read at mass, you're like, oh my goodness, man, it's just, you know, comma after comma, comma, it's like comma, you know, you put it in, you put it in, a Microsoft Word document, and it looks like there's nothing but red, um, because it, yeah, it's like all these grammatical errors and stuff. So because it's just now part of that's the way it was, the way it was written, the way you know, and the way it's translated into English. I lecture for both English and math, so there is a little bit of a difference. When you're lecturing in English and in Spanish, the way it's composed, yes, you're right. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, and it's. Like the uh, around Christmas and Easter, you sometimes you had you do the um, like the office of readings, and you get some of the ancient like the early church fathers, like Saint Leo. I remember reading Saint Leo one time, and I was like, "Oh man, he's so much better than Paul." So, and but like Paul's in the scriptures. I'm like, "Yeah, but he at least has periods and commas where everything." Now again, part of it's the translation too, and that's part of the that's part of it. It's better. It's one of the, my weaknesses. It's better to be able to read a lot of this stuff in Greek because it makes, makes more sense. You know, even the Gospels, reading them in Greek, it's better because the language, you know, the idea, like, I think of love, the idea of love. We think of love like, I love my spouse and I love pizza. Okay, and we use that term, okay? You better not love pizza like you love your spouse, okay? There's a, there's a, there's a problem. But in the Greek, there's multiple understandings of love. And in the Greek language, you would see that if you read it in Greek. We just read love, and we think, oh, man, it's like, you know, it's like Domino's Pizza or whatever. Well, that's garbage. But, you know, like just pizza in general. But that idea, we use that word for a lot of different meanings, where in Greek, it's, it's, there's different expressions of multiple words. Okay? 
um, like the like in the and even in the and I'm on a tangent, but uh, but like you know the way Jesus refers to, uh, eating of the flesh in John six. Okay, there's actual like eating like a meal or kind of like you know like um, or like yeah, they're not eating like a meal like flesh. Like it talks about like animal flesh, like eating, gnawing, crunch. Like in the Greek, we read it as eating, but in the Greek, it's it's just makes more sense because you're you have these multiple understandings. Okay. I, I just heard this when you told me that one of the reasons, like a lot of heresies came out of the Greek speaking world as opposed to the Latin speaking world because of the whole language. And the, the difference in language. That's why you had all these heresies coming out. That part of the world. Whereas in, in the Latin, in the Latin world, there was a little more unity, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's just something. Yeah. No. All the, all the early, all those early, you guys will probably talk about this in church history. All the early church heresies, they all come out of the church. They all come with, or they all come from within the church. So all, so the, all, yeah. But, but depending on the language you spoke, right? Would have right. Okay. All right, so the Pauline communities, uh, we see that there are, he works in areas where the roads and sea routes met. So where the roads and the sea routes meet, where they come together. Because there was a good deal of trade and cultural interchange. Many of the communities that Paul Finds are either port cities or roads that connected to the major cities. So, because it was easy, it was easy traveling. Instead of going off into some, you know, area that you're not familiar with and you don't know what the roads are like. And if you've ever done anything, any kind of Roman history or any kind of Roman study, the Roman roads were way advanced. Okay, really advanced. And as they got on in the periods, as they got in the, into the into the, like the second and third centuries, they even got more advanced. There were sewer systems underneath. It was unreal. Yeah, you ever catch a, like one of those uh, History Channel um, shows on the on the Rome? It's unbelievable what Rome, what, what how technologically advanced they were. Um, so again, Paul wrote to these. Uh, port cities and, and major cities that's, and that connected these towns. So after Jerusalem, the next big Christian community, we talked about this, was what? Antioch. Antioch, okay, because that was where Antioch becomes the springboard to all the other cities for the apostles. It was also the first place that they were called what? Christians. Good. Now, Antioch was a community of believers with a fraternal spirit. And there was solidarity between Antioch and Jerusalem. And there were a lot of wealthy Christians in Antioch that raised money for those in Jerusalem. Now, I had a friend in graduate school that was a Maronite Catholic. Essentially, um, 
he was Lebanese. It's the first time I ever went to a Lebanese, the first time I ever went to Lebanese, a Lebanese restaurant and had Middle Eastern food was with him. I think he still lives in Pittsburgh. And, the, and that's where a lot of like Antioch, like, you know, when the, when the East, when we had the great schism of 1054, he used to say to us, we never left. We, you know, a lot of those Eastern churches, they split off with the church. But, you know, for Maronites, they, he, he'll, he would argue that they, they never left the church. So a lot of that, the Maronites and Lebanese Catholics, you know, that's that same general area of where they're coming from. I mean, that's how far back we're talking about with, with, you know, the Eastern churches go. They go back to, you know, 20, 30 years after the time of Christ. Um, and if you've never experienced the Maronite liturgy, I would encourage you to go because it is a beautiful liturgy. Um, I've talked about the East already a little bit. It's, you'll be like a deer in the headlights, but don't worry about it. It's, it's as very much Catholic as, as the, the usual masses that we go to. Uh, but again, you get these 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 communities that have been have been with the church all of this time. Uh, many of the early Christian communities, although they were culturally different, and lived far from one another, so there was a the early Christian communities there was a cultural difference. They lived far from one another. There were some commonalities that we do see in the early church that exist within these early Christian communities. The first one is that they included both Gentiles and Jews. And most of the Gentiles were Greeks. And so Jews that were like converting to Christianity. And there was no discrimination between the two of them. Because in the ancient world, you know, these cultures, they were a lot of times were at odds with one another, disagreed on a lot of different things. But within these communities, you had both Gentiles and, and Jews that were converting or had converted to Christianity and no discrimination between the two. And then the other thing we saw was that there's an equality between free people, free persons, and slaves. And there was an equality between men and women. So even though you, you know, you had, you know, people that were slaves, people that were free, uh, in within the community itself, there was no discrimination. There was no, uh, you know, there was an equality that existed there. The reason why is because they were all redeemed by Jesus Christ. And had been given the statues to be children of God. So they were redeemed by Jesus Christ and, we, and they were all children of God. And we see early on 
we talked about this last week too, the universality of the church already taking shape. Even though the ancient world was smaller, like when I say world at the time, you know, world at the time, even though it was a smaller world, okay, you know, where, you know, this part of the world hadn't been discovered and wouldn't be discovered for centuries. Um, the world that we knew at the time, there was a universality in it. That's why we see, you know, um, Ignatius of Antioch, not far in the, what, like 110 AD, he uses the word Catholic, Catholicos in Greek, which means pertaining to the whole. So you're talking, you know, 80 years after Paul's letters were written, or maybe 90 years after Paul's letters were written, you're getting Bishop of Antioch saying, look, the church that we know is universal. It's Catholic, Catholicos. It's pertaining to the whole. There's a universality of it. But we start to see it. We start to see it. In the, and that's what's cool about being Catholic. And we all, we, a lot of us said this last week. It's the awesome thing about being Catholic. You go to our cathedral and you see multiple cultures even within the Diocese of Phoenix coming together. You go to Rome, holy shnikes, okay? It becomes like, you know, it's like when I said when I was at World Youth Day, you're just riding around on the bus, you're hearing 10 different languages around you. It's the coolest thing in the world, okay? Everybody's Catholic. Everyone's excited to be Catholic. And you got people from... I, t- I took an American flag with us on, world, on the World Youth Day trip to 2000 when I was a youth minister. I have to be in probably 200 pictures across the world because everyone wanted to take pictures with the American flag because they told us not to take it. This is a year before 9-11, so it's like a year, and a, like a year, like 13 months before 9-11. They told us not to take an American flag, so we didn't take one, but I found an American flag in a tobacco shop in Italy, in Rome. Bought it, strung it on a stick, and was carrying this thing. I looked like George Washington carrying this thing around with on a. I literally makeshifted like out of a PVC pipe that I found in the garbage somewhere. And I literally, we carried this flag around everywhere we went. Everyone wanted to come up and take pictures. It was the coolest thing in the world. I was like twenty four. I was like twenty four years old. I'm with all these kids as a, as their youth minister. And I got all people coming up from all over the world. I mean, all the South American countries. All I mean, we, we were taking pictures with kids from J- Japan. Uh, all throughout all different parts of Italy and Europe. It's, it's awesome. And that's what's the beauty of the church. And the cool thing is, I'm on tangents today. The beautiful thing is that we see, uh, we see this so, so much in the early church. Once they become Christian, yeah. So it's not what's in the community before Yeah, so it's yeah. So in their own culture, they might have you know uh, discrimination against you know like a Jew may not necessarily want to associate with a Greek or a Gentile, but within the community, the, er- the early Christian communities. So like in Cor- like like in Corinth or Ephesus or you know these these places where Paul writes. There's, there's an equality within, with, as soon as they really embrace Christianity and they're taught that we're all children of God, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff starts to fade away. Okay, good question. Okay. All right, so there are certain doctrinal themes in uh, St. Paul's letters. Um, okay, so 
Okay, let's focus on the first one. So now, the other thing I want to tell you, I'm giving you eight themes. There are about 30 different types of themes in Paul's letters. I'm giving you eight. Eight that I thought, and these are the ones that, when I start teaching this class, these are ones that will, for us, I think will stick out to us. But there's a whole lot of themes in Paul's letters. Uh, one of my, my boss now, Father Chris, I told him I'd give him eight themes, and he's like, there's a lot more than eight in Paul's letters. And I'm like, I know, but Father, I got like, you know, five weeks and a one-week course, one week to go over this with, with, um, with people that also don't, you know, this is in their full-time job. So it's, so we're going to go through these, uh, kind of these themes relatively quick, relatively it's, quick. It's nice to hear someone acknowledge that this is in our full-time job. I got a full-time job, too. Okay, but I'm not the one that's also asking you to take the class either. So, okay, so you guys, you guys sign up on your own. All right. So, um, you guys are gonna, man. When you guys get Katrina Zeno next year, you're gonna be like, we wish we had Tom again. Okay, because like Katrina pushes you, she, it's like a fire hose. Okay, it's a fire hose, a fire hydrant, and uh, and uh, the raging river of uh, just of any major country in the world all put together. And yes, I'm saying that on video because she has said to me, Tom, tell them that to prepare for me. Okay. All right. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Obviously, that's a big theme for Paul. A big part of it starts with the appearance of Jesus to the apostle on the road to Damascus. Damascus, yeah. So his this appearance. So Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus in Paul's writing, it first starts when obviously when our Lord appears to him. So Paul echoes what the apostles proclaim, the gospel proclamation, that the resurrection of Jesus. Is, is one of the foremost teachings of the church that our Lord, you know, was, was crucified, crucified, died, and rose from the dead. Christ's resurrection is also proof that we will rise again. And then we also see this through baptism. We rise from baptism, from the sin of our existence. We rise with Christ from our sin and then as a new birth in Christ leads us to the resurrection in heaven. So a, a baptism is our, you know, it's like the, the, the gate to all the sacraments. It's the 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 i the very understanding of it is resurrection. You know we're so used to with baptizing infants. Um, 
you know, in, in baptism fonts and stuff. But I forget what church it was. It might have been St. Paul outside the walls in Rome. They had rooms, massive rooms, like double the size, like that, that room that's over on the other side, that's split into three. Yeah. Imagine oh, taking all the walls down. Rooms like that where they would fill with water and you'd have these baptisms throughout the, you know, in these massive rooms. Fill, and what was cool about this, 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 in the churches, when you walk down the steps into the baptismal, into the baptismal font or bath, the steps are black, like black marble, depicting our sin as we walk in. And then on the other side, you would walk out and the steps were like a white marble declaring that you had. So the symbolism of that just alone is cool. I mean, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Okay. The idea that, you know, you go in with the original sin or an, an actual sin and you come out and you're reborn, you emerge from the water and you're rising with Christ as you come out of the baptismal font. So, um, so that's a major thing for, for Paul's, the resurrection. And obviously, baptism is... Uh... Now, I love icons. I'm a big fan of icons. I, I've become more uh, devoted with, to icons in recent years. Uh, if you're not familiar, I would, you know, you can look, there's classes, on, there's classes here in town on how to, you don't draw them, I think you write them, is how you, so, and, and painting icons, that was the art of the church until the Renaissance, for most of the church, even in the West, was icons, and then once the Renaissance happened, and Michelangelo's, you know, laying on his back on ceilings, and, uh, you know, and all these all these, uh, actually, he stood, I think, on scaffolding and actually did that ceiling. Um, but, you know, once the Renaissance exploded, that became the art of the church in the West. But for many, many years, it was icons. So that's why some of these, I use icons. Um, so Jesus Christ, as the only Savior, is another main doctrinal theme of St. Paul. So prior to his conversion, Paul was faithful to what Judaism taught and that Jesus was not the Messiah. It, was, it wasn't until Paul, uh, until Jesus appeared to Paul that Paul realized that Christ was alive. Paul's faith deepened with our Lord appearing to him. So these first two were kind of, they're, they're connected. Because obviously both have to do with, with Christ. And then... You know, his, the other theme that we see, the other part of this is that we see that 
Paul preaches the good news. And that Christ is the Savior of both the Jews and the Gentiles. You know, for, for, for Jews, this, it, it almost kind of makes sense. You know, you, you, you look at it, if you knew about David and Solomon and what David and Solomon did, and we talked about this in the first class, how the gospel message leaves Jerusalem, it also is the same way David brings the, um, everyone to him. Uh, in the in the Old Testament, um, you know, this would make sense for if you were looking for it. This all would make sense. Christ would make sense to people because it's just the way David was. Our Lord, that's why we call him the Son of David, the New David. It makes it 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 makes sense if you're looking for it and if you're you're looking at it in the in the right way. But obviously, Paul wasn't at first because he was killing Christians. Just to make it clear, Paul, being from Jewish parents who were once slaves that obtained their Roman citizenship, was persecuting his own kin as a Roman citizen. Uh, no, he's a he's a Jew persecuting Christians. <coughs> Not yeah, he's a Jew persecuting Christians. Believers of Christ. Before his conversion, yeah. And then it was, that's why I remember when we read in Acts 9, they're kind of frightened by Paul showing up because they know who he was. Oh, total, ter- yeah, that's a great word for him. It's te- that's a good word. Ter- terror is a good word. Yeah, we talked about him being there at St. Stephen's, uh, more than likely president St. Stephen's um, uh, mar- martyrdom and stoning Yeah, and stoning. All right, the next theme is the salvific mystery. And Paul's letters, you could be they could all be called like the gospel of Paul. I mean it, it's kind of a, a term that's loosely connected. Paul doesn't necessarily write his own gospel. He writes letters, but his, his, what's contained in his letters is really what we see the apostles also preaching in the gospels is the proclamation of God's plan for salvation of, of all mankind. So it's what we see in the four gospels, the same type of message is now also You know, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but we also call him the apostles of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, me. Apostles of the Gentiles. Um, you know, I said a couple of weeks ago, one of the readings was how he talks about himself as an apostle, but lesser than all the, he's an apostle, but lesser than all the original 12. And we get expressions like the mystery of Christ. Of God. 
of faith. So this saving, a big thing we see in Paul is this saving plan by God that what had been underlined for, for centuries is now being revealed and fulfilled by Christ. So like so many of like the, we think a good example would be like the sacraments. The seven sacraments Christ, you know, he, 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 he finds the sacraments. He, he creates the sacraments that we have, the, the, the origins of them or the, the seed of the sacraments. But there, a lot of the sacraments were hidden in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Hans got a book on this. So does Brant Petrie. And where you see so much of this stuff that, like, our, where, do, where are our sacraments in the Old Testament? So, like, we see baptism in the Old Testament. You see reconciliation. You see anointing of the sick. You see sacrifice and worship, uh, you know, with the animals and all, leading, all that stuff leading to the Eucharist. So there's all of that being, uh, being revealed, and, uh, and that's essentially what the salvific plan, the salvific mystery is, that what was now hidden um, has now been revealed by Christ. And then the last part of this is that the Damascus vision was not to establish a new religion. So it was Paul's burning bush, but it wasn't what, it wasn't a whole, it was a mission to go out to continue the same mission that had already started. And that the mystery would be fulfilled by Christ. Mystery isn't like murder mystery. Because if you, from the Greek, if you translate mystery from Greek into Latin, it goes from mystery to like sacramentum. Like the idea of the sacraments, and then into the English, which is sacraments. So, like the mysteries that are going to be revealed to us. So that's why Jesus tells the apostles, "All you'll do greater things than this." Not only would Peter heal from his shadow, and Paul, you know, from a handkerchief. So, like I talked about this last week with the idea of relics, but then also the sacraments themselves. Even though Jesus healed made people walk, rose people from the dead. The sacraments are even greater than those because of the grace that they give us. I get fired up. I get fired up when I talk about the sacraments. So yeah, sorry. I get a little excited when I talk. You guys are wanting to learn this. It's great, it's great speaking to people that want to learn. So, but it's, it's you know, it's, that's, that's the beauty of the sacraments. That's why the sacraments are so important. You know, we have people that come to the, our churches punching tickets for the sacraments, get their kids baptized or give them the Holy Communion confirmation, and then ugats. We never see them. We don't see them again for 10 years when they want to get married or something. It's just like, where are they? You know, so I mean, it's like, it's like in my current position, it's like people come punching a ticket for the sacraments, and they're not practicing the faith. So it's good teaching people that 
get excited, get excited, say amen after I'm talking, after, you know, get excited about it. Yeah, this is what I want to learn. Okay. Another one is the divinity of Jesus Christ. So when you read through Paul's letters after today's, if you haven't started your presentation, um, and or if you have and you go back and you start kind of reviewing again, uh, a lot of you, you'll see some, you'll see a lot of these these these. Uh, that's why I'm using these themes because these these will these will stick out to you. So the divinity of Jesus Christ, we see these different titles of Christ that Jesus is the Son of God. We also see Christ referred to as the Lord, which is a a term we see in the Old Testament. Just so you know, when you see it, like when you read the Old Testament, if, if Lord is fully capitalized, they're talking about God. If Lord, just the first L is capitalized, they're talking about like an individual. It's just a good, because you know, like you would call David my Lord, because... He was, you know, kings, kings and queens, or kings you call my Lord. Um, but that's a good, so we see the term that's in, in the Old Testament scriptures being referred to Christ. The Lord, the Son of God. And also Savior. So those are terms, titles that we see Jesus given. What? Because he's both. But what, what's the difference? What is, what well, the Son of God is a son. He's Son of the Father. The Son of Man is that he's he's still he's still human. So there, it sh- kind of shows his 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 uh, two natures. Yeah. Okay. Good question. Uh, Christ existed eternally before being sent into the world. Prior to the creation of the world. It's like the second person of the Trinity was Jesus, who we know as the person of Jesus Christ. And then Christ is co-eternal with the Father. So a big, you know, a big part of it, you know, obviously Christ's divinity is important for us. And Paul specifically talks about Christ being divine. Because all of these other, you know, now let's, th- now let's think about this outside in our context. You, know, you see stuff on Facebook or social media. Buddha did not say he was son of God. Confucius did not say he was son of God. Um, uh, Muhammad did not say he was son of God. Jesus Christ said he was son of God. You know, Christ, you know, declared his divinity. Peter de- de- declares his divinity. So there's there's something that's different than Christ and all these other founders of, of, of these other religions. Um, and then the, the understanding that he's co-eternal. 
and that he's of the same substance. And that's why the creed, that's why when we changed the, the wording of the creed was so important, consubstantial, being of the same substance with the Father. Do we think that Jesus, uh, so he existed always, but did he have his human nature uh, eternally? No. He got that when he was born, right? Correct, he had one yeah. Before, right. Then he had two natures. Right. And after he ascended, we believe both human we both believe both human and divine that Christ exists in heaven as both human and divine both both natures yeah so you know we you know it's it's the understanding of the church that our lord probably still has his you know the markings of his crucifixion even 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 within heaven today is that the, the you know he goes into heaven with those markings, with the you know what we know is the marks of the marks of Christ. Good questions. Um, okay, the incarnation of the Son of God. Now this obviously goes. He's, this talks now more of his human. His human. Okay, the Son of God took on human form. And in the scriptures it says, born of a woman, born under the law. Born of a woman, born under the law. Under the Mosaic law. He was born of a woman and born under the the law. All the elements of life that enslaved humans now were overcome by Jesus. So Christ becomes the new Adam. Oh, I, I got to show you guys something, something. All the elements of life enslaved humans are overcome by Christ. <laughs> So we see Christ is the new Adam because he takes on our human condition. Now, Christ is the new Adam, and Mary is the new Eve. If you guys have your Bibles with you, open up to, I just want to show you this real quick. Because we see, this is just kind of cool to understand. You know, people say, well, where where do we see this? So John chapter 1. And then put your finger there, your hand there, and then go to Genesis chapter 2. 
Oh, that's right. You guys don't have Genesis. You guys have the... Okay. All right. Sorry. Okay. All right. Genesis chapter 2. So, if, all right. Yeah. Some of you have, the, you have your New Testament. Okay. So, so in Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation of the world. And then we finally see Adam and Eve coming together. Okay. And we see this idea of uh, kind of a marriage between Adam and Eve. Adam is the bridegroom, Eve is the bride. This is where we get, this is at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Okay, it's like the first time we see poetry in the scriptures. He's declaring his love for his, for his lady, for his, for his woman, um, for, for Eve. Um, and of course, he throws her under the bus a few verses later. But, uh, but... But this is where we see this, ma- this idea of marriage, this nuptial theme, okay? The idea of Adam as Christ is the new Adam, John does this on purpose. So if you look, so I'm going to go through the, st- the, the days of creation in John. So day one, okay? Day one is essentially from verse one, to verse 28. If some, of you, if some of you have seen this before. Okay. So from verse 1 to verse 28 is day 1. We're still under all the elements of life, correct? Yeah, uh, the next part. Yeah, yeah we're, yeah, we're still under the incarnation. Yeah, we're still going to talk about... Yeah, we're still under the incarnation. This necessarily isn't... This I'm just showing you because I want to show this to you because I always think this is... Because we're talking about Christ as the new Adam. Day two, so it says in... See how it starts? The first verse starts, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very similar to the way Genesis starts. Verse 29, it says the next day. That's day two. Then you go to verse 35. It says the next day. That's day three. Verse 34, or excuse me, 43. It says the next day. That's now day number four. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, it says, on the third day, four days plus three days equals seven days. John does this on purpose to show that the new covenant is being now given a new Adam and a new Eve. Christ becomes your new Adam. Mary is the new Eve. And guess where all this takes place? At our marriage at Cana. Just like at the end of Genesis chapter 2, we see a marriage taking place. So this new creation that happens, the new covenant that starts to take place. Now, people say, oh, this is, you know, this is all dumb luck. No, no, no. John does this on purpose. Okay? 
most of the gospel writers, they do this, there's a purpose to their writing, to mirror and reflect what we see in the Old Testament. So this idea that Christ becomes the Adam that destroyed mankind, the new Adam now restores mankind. And it's not Eve's fault. Adam was there the whole time with her. Everyone tries to blame Eve, okay? The serpent goes around Adam because the serpent's a, a piece of garbage, okay? The devil, there's a few other words I could come with our choice words for him as well, okay? That's why I have my big rosary I have to beat Satan over the head with it, okay? That big power cord rosary I've got. So, yeah, just take this thing, just smack my, my big Benedict cross, okay? I mean, because Satan will do anything he can to destroy us. So, Adam's there with her. It's, you know, it's a mutual blame. But here we see Christ and Mary now redeeming all of that. That's why we understand Mary as the new Eve. Um, yeah, it's, and then, that, and then really the, the idea of John when Jesus says, what, what does this have to do with me? He's not pushing Mary off, just so you know. He's referring, he, what, he essentially, what Jesus that whole statement that our Lord says essentially means is if I perform this miracle, Calvary starts. The walk to Calvary starts here. So if you want, if, if I perform this miracle, we're looking at Calvary now three years, you know, three years out, well, we know three years out. But Calvary, the walk to Calvary then begins. That's a little off topic, but I just want to show you the understanding of the new Adam. Yes? Um. So what you just showed us about counting the days, it's kind of like uh, unveiling something that's hidden, like to me or to us, but do you think that to the readers, uh, to John's audience at the time, was that very obvious connection, like much more obvious than it would be today? It, I believe so, yes. Yeah, because they, he does it on purpose. To, to, to his audience, they would have, because he's writing to the, to the Jews, it would have made, it would have made sense to them. Yeah. I mean, he, he doesn't do it, he doesn't do it to, for us 2,000 years later. He does it for his audience at the time. So he's trying to show that, Christ, you know, that, that God is, is now redeeming us with the new, with the new Adam and, and the new Eve. So, Jill. John and the other writers were all inspired by the Holy Spirit in their writing. Right. We are to believe that these guys are just so brilliant that they were able to well, the apostles, the apostles were bumbling. Yeah, but after, but after Pentecost, there's a there's a change. There's a, there there is a change. I mean, is Pentecost a miracle? Like a magic? It's not like the sacraments are magic for us. I mean, we still commit sins, even though we go to reconciliation. But it's the idea that uh, yeah, they were inspired to use their own intellect and knowledge to. to to write these these stories, yeah, if, uh, yeah. See, I don't have the time. It, I have a whole when I teach on the New Testament, like so before Acts stuff, I go and explain all of this, like the themes, why the apostles wrote the way they wrote, who they were writing to. I just don't have the time to do it with you guys because I, I can't cover it in this class. Um, but yeah, you know, it's not like the it's not like. And those guys can, up there can see me. It's not like somebody went up to like Omar, and like, not like God went behind his head and said, "This is what I want you to write." 
Okay, that's not what the way God works. You know, the way the way Moses and the prophets write is that they're inspired, that, that uh, the Holy Spirit inspired them to write what they what they wrote. Kind of an, yeah, somewhat like yeah, somewhat of infused knowledge with a yeah. So you've got you know Matthew was a tax collector, so he's probably a little smarter on the on the on certain aspects because he had to keep track of money. Uh, Luke was a physician, so you know even in the ancient world you had to have probably smarts to be a doctor. And then and John was uh, we believe John was probably formally educated at some point. Uh, and then, uh, and then John Mark, we believe, had some education as well. knew multiple language, knew multiple languages. So these, the four gospels that we have, we have them. I mean, they're they're somewhat skilled at their what they're writing. So yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no. Don't. I mean, Peter. Peter writes letters too, but he's kind of bump. He's a bumbling idiot before Pentecost. I mean, he makes one mistake after another. Denies that Jesus even, even even was even knew Jesus. So. Um, yeah, she does. Mother Angelica just used to hammer the apostles. So, yeah, read anything uh, on her. Okay, so let's go through. I'm going to go through these last two themes and then. What was the supreme proof of what? Oh, so supreme proof that God's love for man exists. Thank you. His death is the supreme proof. Of God's love for man. And his death won for us the forgiveness of sins. All right, so justice and justification, we see this in, in Romans. This is where, and it's probably the most difficult of all the letters by Paul, is, is the letter to the Romans. No, I know. It's, I'm just talking. I'm just, we'll get into it. But yeah, it's, this is where you see justice and justification. So, Paul refers to justice or righteousness by which he means the saving power of God that expresses itself in Christ's work of redemption. So, justice and just and right or righteousness has to do with the saving power of God in Christ's work of redemption. I wonder what's going on down here today because all I keep seeing are priests showing up <coughs> behind you guys. There's one after, after a while. Hasn't been for a while, but I can hear them all out here. Yeah. Um... And then by believing in Jesus, a person gains access to this redemption.
Justification is the word used to describe the new relationship that a human being has with God. And that happens through the workings of divine grace. So this new relationship that a human being has with God happens through the workings of divine grace. Now, this becomes a big point of argument since the Lutheran Reformation. And this is something that Luther, he, takes, he, he completely takes what Paul says and kind of twists it all around. And we don't have, this is, that would be, we can go down, that's, a, that's a, one of those rabbit holes, so you can go down, that just, it's, it's, it's a lot, there's a lot to it. And I'll be honest with you, Romans, I, I struggle with Romans myself to understand Romans completely. Uh, it's not the easiest of Paul's, Peter even says it, it's not the easiest letter to understand. For Paul, though, every idea of his theology flows from the person of Christ. The three stages in the process of justification. So the first is that the initiative comes from God. It's God calling to us. A person doesn't obtain justification thanks to actions he or her did in the past but it's, it's God's initiative calling to us. The second stage, God wants us all to be saved. So he's pulling us to him. Though, and although God's taken the initiative with us and wants us to be saved, every human being must respond personally to God's grace. You must want to want God's grace. He's not going to force his grace upon us. If we're not open to receiving his grace, we won't. We gotta, you gotta want it. I mean, you gotta want to have that, that desire. You know, it's what the, it's the, the, it's the idea of the church. The church will propose the truth. She'll never impose the truth. We propose the truth 
every day. But it's if you you don't want to believe, you don't want to believe. But you got to be open to God. You got to be to 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 receive that grace. You got to be open to it. All right, we're gonna do these two more themes, and then we'll take a break. The second one is Christian life in Christ. Or the, the seventh one. Sixth. Oh, yeah. The justice, the justice one wasn't on our sheet. Oh, it wasn't on. Oh, I didn't have that on. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. So was that supposed to? Because I kept thinking. That should have been. That should have been number. That should have been number six. We'll just call that one 5B. Yeah, 5B. <laughs> yeah, sorry. There's not eight and you said eight. So that's number six. Yeah, that was number six was justice. I, I'm sorry that wasn't on there. Okay. Number seven, so seven is Christian life in Christ. So here's this is where we, the idea that in the Christian life we are now part of Christ. We're sons, we're sons and daughters, we're children of God. No longer slaves, but a son, an heir. It doesn't matter for you know male or female. We all celebrate in the sonship of God. The, the it's a it's known as it's the the term is filial f i l i a l filial. It means sonship. We share in that sonship. We all share in that relationship with God the Father through Christ that, that, that exists as, as children of God. No longer slaves. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now, we now share in that divine sonship through Christ. And through our baptism through confirmation the gift of the holy spirit is poured into our hearts and our uh, onto our souls and into our hearts and then as as a christian we need to shed our lives of those ethical immoralities We see this theme a lot in Corinthians. Don't be slaves to sin. You know, our lives are, we need to shed our lives of ethical immoralities. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your life changes when you become a Christian. There should be a radical transformation that takes place. 
You know, we all struggle. We all have our own crosses to carry, sins to bear, things that we deal with. I mean, every time I go to reconciliation, it's the same thing I've been saying for the last 20 years. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same list because you, now there's some there's certain there's certain cha- there's certain changes that you know <clears throat> you know as a as a single as a single guy you, de- you you struggle with certain you struggle as a single person you might struggle with certain sins and you get married the single person's sins maybe you don't struggle with them as much okay you know. I, being, you know, narcissistic, but then I realize I'm somewhat narcissistic and selfish even in my own ma- in my marriage. Okay, but it, you know, and then you, you get married. It's there's other sins. So, but the general gist of my sins are the general gist of my sins have been the same for years. But do I try? Yeah, I'm trying every time. Every time we come out of reconciliation. Our, our, our faith should be deepened more. Our, our conversion, we should have a conversion each time. And, and, I, and we all do, but we all have, you know, there's certain things that, that we all got them. I mean, if I ever won the lottery, I have someone drive me around because I can't stand driving in Phoenix anymore. I have no patience, none, especially in the car. I'd probably get a helicopter and just fly over everybody. <laughs> But I mean, that's where I'm like, okay, that's never going to happen. But, um, but it's, it's just, I know my own struggles with being impatient on the road. So again, as a Christian, we got to always reminding ourselves to, 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 to our life is different. And then lastly is the church. And Paul writes more about the church than any other New Testament writer. And it all starts with the road to Damascus. Because it begins with the words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because it doesn't say, why do you persecute the church? Why do you persecute me? Because right from that get-go, Christ is saying that me and the church are one. So as Catholics, we should strive to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the church because they're one and the same. And Paul, throughout his years and life here on earth, would continue to have revelations about his understanding of the church. Now, although his letters describe churches, he always understood the church to be one single entity. So for us, that would be what we would call like the uni- like a universality of the church. That there's only one church. And that 
all the members of the church, Christ, the church, are all one. It's all part of the body of Christ. So if you guys ever read in any kind of, when you hear the word universal church, it's talking about the universal church of all, the, the entire church. Not just the church in Rome, okay? Not just the church in Rome, but the church as a whole, all the diocese, all together. When it says a partic- when it says the particular church, that means it's talking about a specific diocese. The, so like the particular church of Arizona, you've got Tucson, Phoenix, and Gallup. Those are the particular churches. So that's just, that's just a, kind of a side note. When you read church documents, you'll see the, the particular church or the particular churches have um, you know, maybe their own uh, customs or traditions or something different than the universal church. Ecclesiology is awesome. That's the study of the church. It is got, oh, I love ecclesiology. And then the last thing is that we see this mysterious relationship between Christ and the church. And we say that the church is a sacrament of salvation to the world. The church is a sacrament of salvation to the world. And when it comes to movies and books and everything else, it's always you always see stuff about the Catholic. You always see you always in movies. Okay, this is another side note. Think about when you see stuff about in movies. It's always it always takes place in the Catholic Church. Okay, what else are they, they going to get? We're the ones with ornate churches, okay? Especially in like New York, well, maybe not out here. But, um, but you know, like back east where you get churches that are, you know, there's, there's always, the church is always, um, always plays a role somewhere, even within, even within today's culture. My wife and I were watching something the other night, and it had nothing to do with nothing. And it was just like, and it was like they were in a Catholic church. I'm like, why the heck are they in a Catholic church? And she's like, well, look at it; it's gorgeous. Because where else are they gonna, they, you know, go to like a little Protestant church? It doesn't have the, it does, you know, they don't have what that ha- what that altar looks like. So, all right, let's take a ten minute break. Be back here at ten fifty. If you want to know the, your, what you got on your quiz, I can, uh, I can uh, give you.